Hello, I'm Bob Boudet. I have worked in the thought leadership industry for 35 years now. I run a firm called Boudet Thought Leadership Partners, and I recently published a book called Competing on Thought Leadership. Now you can find it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and other book selling websites. We have a new podcast series and it's called Everything Thought Leadership. We've created for people and organizations that compete on the basis of having superior expertise. Now you'll find a lot of definitions on thought leadership out there in the marketplace. But mine is the following. It's the acclaim that a person or organization achieves after it develops, markets, and delivers superior expertise that solves real business problems. My guests on Everything Thought Leadership will include people who are recognized thought leaders in the marketplace, as well as people who help those thought leaders get such recognition. And these people will include chief marketing officers, heads of thought leadership research, chief executive officers of companies that compete on thought leadership, and others. And I will also feature people who run key outlets for thought leaders, including prestigious publications that every thought leader in business wants to get into, and conferences in which they want to become keynote speakers. So it is with great pleasure to welcome Charlene Lee as our first guest. Charlene is an expert on how leaders of companies need to manage the digital disruption of their businesses and their entire industries. She began her career back in 1988 as a consultant at a firm called Monitor in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Charlene then went on to work for several newspapers in the Bay Area, helping them transition from a print product to an online world. Following that, she became a researcher and analyst at Forrester Research in Cambridge, Massachusetts. That was in 1999, and she stayed at Forrester for nearly 10 years. In 2008, she founded her own firm called Altimeter Group, where she researched the impact of digital technologies, and she led Altimeter Group to rapid growth. Charlene sold Altimeter to a consulting firm called Profit in the year 2015. Now, all during that time, Charlene has been the author or co-author of six books, several of them bestsellers, and they include Open Leadership, Groundswell, and her latest book, which is called The Disruption Mindset. All right, Charlene, it's great to have you here. Really Thank great. you so much for having me. Yeah, appreciate it. Okay, so we have a few questions here to ask in these 40 minutes or so. The first one is, um, when you look back at your illustrious career, what moments are you proud of the most? I The moments I'm proud of the most are when people have come up to me and just said, what you said, what you wrote, what I watched was so impactful. It changed the trajectory of my life, of my career. And to have people you know, share that, first of all, first of all, what an honor. And then that just makes me even more motivated to do what I do. Um, it, and you know, it's every time I step on the stage, but literally those are the moments that are just so meaningful to me and they happen all the time. Um, but especially cause I've had such a long career, people are coming back and say, I read this early in my career and I changed my career because of your work. That is extraordinary that it could have that kind of impact. Yeah. So, you know, feeling like you've touched people in a, in a, in a way that maybe, you know, quote unquote thought leaders don't realize the impact of, of what they, of what they advise. And, um, and, and it's the reason why we do this work because we hope that it, it, it actually has some sort of outcome of just us kind of putting our words out into the void. 
And uh, to know that it actually makes a difference makes me all the more motivated to do more of it. It was like a calling. It, it feels like I'm called to do this work. And I keep doing it because keep, people keep telling me that it makes a difference. So back when you entered this business, I'll say back in your Monitor days, uh, you joined Monitor in 88, and they were a thought, you know, thought leadership-based consulting for Michael Porter and, and the rest, um, Joe Fuller, et cetera. Did, was that where you said, I love this thought leadership stuff. I got to figure out how to do it here or somewhere else. Was, was that kind of the thing that set you forward in, in this profession? No, no, not at all. In fact, I, I really appreciated the frameworks. I loved thinking that way. Um, I think very strategically in those kind of frameworks and help build some of those. But the thought of becoming a thought leader, author, analyst, anything like that wasn't even close to my mind when I went back to business school. And even when I graduated from business school, I wanted to go out and do things because that's where I went to business school. I wanted to make that change happen. Uh, but I was doing even then like all this analysis and I saw that the internet was going to be really big. This is back in 1993 and decided I went to go into newspapers. And so nobody goes to newspapers out of business school. Nobody does. It's crazy. Like what was my friends thought I was crazy, but I ended up at the San Jose Mercury News in Silicon Valley uh, working on the newspaper of tomorrow, selling internet ads with the salespeople really getting my hands dirty. And later on as internet publisher, you know, coding in straight HTML with no cascading style sheets, hundreds of newspapers. So, you know, I, I got my hands really dirty right into the middle of all of this at a very early stage and trying to figure out the business strategies. And it was only after I've been running it, you know, quite successfully. And then I had kids and I realized I didn't want to manage things at work anymore. I had babies at home. I didn't want to go back and manage more, quote, babies at work. <laughs> so I thought I'd be an analyst for a few years. Just have that freedom. And when I got to Forrester, I realized I loved it. And I was really good at it. So, um, so in your days at the Mercury, and, um, and then you, were help, you helped Fidelity start community newspapers, which my wife uh, worked for at one point before they sold it to the Boston Herald, I think they sold it to. But back in your newspaper days, and with the internet, you know, really starting to make waves and Craigslist starting to siphon away the classified ads and all that. Did you think back then in your newspaper days that this industry is in trouble, even though at the time it wasn't in you looked at their financials of the public companies, Gannett, New York Times, they weren't in trouble, right? They weren't in trouble, Knight Ritter, they were not in trouble at that time if you just looked at their balance sheets. Oh, no, we knew, everyone knew who was working on this side of the business knew that they were in trouble. I, again, when I moved from the Santa Mercury News back east, I, I interviewed, the other company I interviewed with was Jeff Taylor at Monster.com. Oh, sure. Yeah, so, and everything I did at Community Newspapers was built around how do we create new revenue streams. So we charged for the online classifieds and gave the print away for free. And we're profitable from day one as we did that. And simple economics, people understood the value of print. So when you give it away, they see the value of that. And they were getting for the online. And at the same time, we were establishing a price point for the value of online classifieds. They were in line with the other competition, but not in line with newspapers at all. 
for every other newspaper was giving the online away for free and nobody cared. Like you weren't establishing value for that. With very few exceptions. I mean, the Wall Street Journal, I guess, first online edition was paid, but the New York Times, I think, was free and every other newspaper was free. So, you know, when you look back on your career at, at Forrester, at Altimeter Group, um, what do you see as the little known success factors, um, you know, in um, becoming a thought leader in your domain or domains? Um, things that people who are trying to do something similar in their domains may not realize because they haven't been through it. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I was at Forrester for almost 10 years. So it was a really long time. And I went from sizing the internet advertising market all the way down to like digital transformation, social media, those kinds of topics. So, and along the way, covered email marketing, had a nice little stint looking at search uh, and uh, search advertising. And then and fell into the social technology space. So the thing that I kept doing is I kept staying fresh. I kept on top of the trends. I would develop an area, grow it, and then literally give it to somebody else who wanted to take it over. So kept going on to new topics because you can't stay on one topic and assume that I can talk about this forever. The pace of change is happening so quickly. And so I think one of the, the keys that we did at, that I did at Forrester that was different from many of my other analysts is that I kept something, I kept covering a new area every two years, basically. So did you, uh, were you afraid then of getting stale at, at staying on the same problem in the world, at, at getting stale and getting bored? Was that it? Why you, you moved to something else? It wasn't so much stale, but I just found that the problems weren't as interesting. I, I always constantly look for questions and a research thesis that I didn't know the answer to. So what is this thing called search? Why is it so interesting? Everybody thought like, it's so cheap to have to pay for traffic. I'm like, it's the best thing in the world. Are you kidding me? Um, and I was just curious about how that was working because all these small businesses were using it, but the big businesses couldn't figure out what that was going on. Social technologies, it just was this crazy space. I'm like, that's really fascinating. Look at the power shift that was happening. So like, what's going on there? Um, what's going on with leadership? How is that changing? And the power distance being squeezed. We don't know what the answer is around those things. So I keep running towards topics where it's not clear what the answer is. Most thought leaders like to talk about things where they know the answer. That's the thing. If everyone, if you know the answer, most likely quite a few other people know the answer. But look, go to the places where people don't know the answers. You don't even know the answer. And it's nerve wracking. Like, am I going to find the answer? And this is where the confidence that comes with experience. It says, I'll figure it out. Along the way, I might find some other questions actually that are very different that come up. That power shift was just beginning in 2006 when Facebook became a mainstream social media site. In that year, Sharnine and her colleagues at Forrester released a research report called Social Computing. That looked at the trend of people sharing information and views with others online and the impact of that on corporations. This trend provided both opportunities and risks for these firms. Then late in 2006, Charlene and her co-author Josh Burnoff began working on the book Groundswell. It was a book about the impact of social media on companies. I look at the world as you know, it's focus and then creating the content and then, of course, getting the audience to the content, marketing the content. So, you know, you have shifted your focus 
somewhat, although I, you know, would you say that when you shift your focus, it's been in a completely different area or it's in a, it's close. It's very continuous. Again, I started as a technology analyst, you know, looking at the technology and that has always been the foundation of a lot of what I do. But now I rarely talk about very specific technologies. I can dive deep into them, um, but my, my expertise isn't on helping you choose an email platform, marketing automation platform. It's really about how do you use that platform overall to say, enabling new capabilities that drive business transformations and engagement with your customers. So it, it's looking at things on a much more strategic level, but it's, I'll, I'll give an example. My oh. first book, Groundswell, was about how to use the social technologies. And then a CEO came up to me and was, I get it, I need to be authentic and open and transparent. How open do I need to be? And I thought, that's a really good question. And so that became the thesis of my next book, Open Leadership. And you can see how that just kind of builds and builds on each other. Like these topics keep raising additional questions with people. I'm like, well, that's a really good question. I don't know the answer to that. So let's go take a look at that. In other words, what you didn't do is jump to a totally disparate topic. Like you started with technology, then social media. You didn't then say, well, I'm going to look at supply chains now and technology. Kind of, yeah, well, technology's in it, but it's pretty far removed from, from the world of social media. Yeah, I'll give you an example of the topic I'm very curious about, and it feels in some ways like a very big stretch. And, and it's this whole idea of stakeholder capitalism and stakeholder-based uh, decision-making, where it's no longer just shareholders, but your customers and your employees, your, the communities you're in, the environment, the ecosystem of your supply chain. And how do you decide where to invest in each of them? Because it's a fixed pool of what your assets are and where you can put your attention. And that, frankly, if you boil it down, is about the future of capitalism. <laughs> so <laughs> like it's a big, huge, scary topics like that. But it comes out of my fascination for how do you balance customers and employees against the business that you have to do? How do you put them into context? and understand that all of those from a leadership perspective, well, how do you make the trade-offs? Yeah, especially against shareholders, right? If it's a public company or or if it's, even if it's private equity owned, those shareholders are pretty demanding. I mean, how do you balance those employees and customer interests against the short or long-term interests of shareholders? Yeah, and it comes from my business um, and the business transformation and digital transformation work that I've been, been doing now for a decade. And, and the digital transformation touches very strongly into business transformation. So if you're going to transform this business, how do you measure the success of that? Mm -hmm. And if you're going to invest in customers, you're going to invest in employees, those investments don't show up on the balance sheet, don't show up in your P&L. So how do you decide how much to invest? It's an underlying theme and I'm, I'm bringing it up now and that's what I'm, I'm really fascinated by because we all believe that we should be investing in our various stakeholders, not just shareholders. But how do you actually do that? Sounds great when you talk about it, but how do you actually do it? Right, how do you do it? Especially the, especially the shareholder stakeholders and the employee stakeholders. I mean, I, you know, it seems to me companies know how to, you know, the customer related investments. Okay, they've done that for years, but employee investments, we do this kind of training. Will somebody take that and leave? Is therefore that a good investment or shareholder investments? You know, should we make investments to help better explain our story to shareholders? Or when a company like Walmart, the board comes in and just says, 
we need to make an investment in sustainability because it's the right thing to do. Go figure out a plan and we're going to invest in that. And yeah, it's going to take from my shareholders, but it's worth it. How do you make that decision? How do you decide that this is the right amount to be investing in this because it pays off in the long run? So lots of questions around those kinds of issues, but there's no easy answer to that. And that's what's fascinating for me. So what else has kept you going as someone who is very visible, you know, very revered in the marketplace? Um, what else are the, you know, when you think about aspire people who want to follow in your footsteps, kind of the hard lessons that are not evident that maybe people like you don't like to talk about, you know, what, what, what are things that are really important, but really easy to miss? When people are writing, they're like, what do I write about? Like, how do I become a thought leader? How do I make sure that my thoughts are out there and, and resonating with people? If it's about you, if it's about your thoughts and your ideas, it will never resonate. If it's about how you are helping people, if you're really clear about who you are helping and understanding their pain points and needs, and you're writing very specifically to those pain points, you will always resonate. So my person I'm writing to, her name is Valerie, very clear idea of who she is. Um, she's a woman of color. She's working at a financial institution. She's a VP level. She's intent on creating change, but this is a large financial bank. You know, they don't do change very well. And she's frustrated. She really wants to know how she can move things forward without upsetting the apple cart. And she does this in her personal life. She doesn't, she's not able to do it in her work life. So how do, how do I break through, she says. How do I keep on top of the trends? How do I become a better leader? How do I understand these technologies? So I'm, I'm very clear about what her issues are and what she's looking for, her frustration with the content that's out there right now, constantly updating what her needs are. I'm thinking about where she's heading and I'm hoping to meet her. Yeah, I love that because I think it's, and I've worked with a lot of thought leaders over the years, and I'm not going to say for all of them or even most of them, but I, I think I have sensed for some of them, they do lose touch with their audience. They, they've become so successful. They start becoming self-interested. They start they, they start to write for themselves, saying, I don't care if any, nobody will know this term. I'm just gonna throw it at them. I don't care if they understand the term, I, I'm gonna use it because I'm famous and people have to listen to me. Yeah, um, it was funny. One of the things we had as a value at Altimeter was humility. And another analyst that follows analysts laughed in my face when I told him that. He goes, you gotta be kidding. Analysts being humble? No way. I'm like, no, it's a core tenet. Because if you think you know all the answers, you're never gonna be looking for the right questions. And it was such a, an important tenet for us at Altimeter and, and continues to be for me. I am not even close to knowing what the answers are. There are so many questions out there that haven't been answered yet. Let's go out there and take a look at them. Be willing to be wrong. Be willing to say, I don't know the answer to that. I have some guesses and some opinions and I'll share them with you, but man, that's a really darn good question. Any other big things that you think the, the person who's on this journey should keep in mind that they may miss simply because very few people talk about them? I think just the total um, insecure overachievers that most thought leaders are. We're insecure and we want to achieve and we achieve. And so perfectionism, um, imposter syndrome, all of these things that are in your head. So I literally write down what my fears are. 
and is it real? Like what would happen if I could, how would I dress it? And then all those things going all the way through the process and say, in the end, why are you doing this? What's the benefit of it? I was just looking at my, my sheet for this new course that I'm creating. And I just can't get my act together to go do this. And I realize it's because I'm feeling insecure about putting out a new type of content. Um, will people like it? Am I pricing it the wrong way? Is it new and interesting? Would anybody show up? All those insecurities I have to deal with. Now, you might be surprised to hear from someone who has published a number of best-selling books like Charlene Lee, who has also launched a highly successful technology research company, Altimeter Group, and who has been a rock star in the sphere of leadership consultants. But for many of the thought leaders I've known, their past success does not necessarily make them more confident about achieving future success. And just keep in mind, who am I writing this for? Who am I creating this for? This will be a benefit for them. And even if it's not a, quote, huge success, I'm going to learn something along the process just by getting it up. Even when you've climbed up the mountain and like, okay, well, there's another height to reach. But even when you say, well, I'm not at the bottom anymore. I mean, I'm not where I was in 1988, where nobody outside Monitor Group and my clients knew me, right? Uh, and my classmates at HBS. I mean, you're you're up there. So someone might say, Charlene, what do you what do you have to worry about? Right? Here's what you have to worry about. You worry about your brand and your reputation because it takes a lifetime to create it and a moment, a single moment to lose it. Yes. So that's what's at risk for our thought leaders. Like you've built this up, you've got a couple thousand people now following you. And then one errant tweet, one missaid sentence can bring all of it down. That's the kind of world we live in now. When you're out there in public, what can you risk? What can you do? And what you realize is that there's tremendous grace out there. I mean, I did a live stream this morning and like Facebook wasn't working. Alarms are going off. And then, you know, the stream disappeared completely because my internet went out. I'm like, sorry, folks. I don't know what's going on today, but it is what it is. We're just going to do our best. And what can you do? Right. And everything that could happen usually does. And just being, just realizing your, your audience has so much grace and understanding for that. Uh, that has been really helpful. And, and frankly, at times when people have come after me, trolls or anything else, my followers, my audience has come to my rescue. I've really come to defend me and said, no, you know, leave her alone. I am so grateful for that. I'm just so incredibly grateful. And I feel myself so lucky to be able to have that dialogue, to have that relationship with people. So would you advise people who aspire to be where you are uh, and other thought leaders are, would you advise them to, especially in this world when, you know, we're all visible 24 by seven on the internet, if, if we're on it, do you advise them to have a thick skin? You have to, because anybody can comment. I mean, remember when I was at Forrester and I wrote the first analyst blog that actually had comments, open up the comments. I'm like, why wouldn't I have comments? But what do they say something you don't like? Like, bring it on. I want to know about it. If they're saying it, they may as well tell me about it so I can address it. So they came pouring in, like, how do you defend that? You know, why did you say that? And it was a dialogue and the engagement that comes with that. You have to have a thick skin, nerves of steel and a stomach, ironclad stomach, because this is going to be churning all the time. And I, I think the, the other thing that I hear from people oftentimes is, well, you know, everyone's really talked about this topic so many times. Do I really want to cover it? I need to cover something new. And unless I can find something new, I'm not going to talk about it. The difference though is 
no, you haven't talked about it. You haven't brought your perspective, your experiences uh, into that dialogue. And that is valuable. That's what people want to hear and see, even it's the same topic. So, you know, I, I, people say, nobody'd be interested. And I go, how do you know until you put it out there? Well, there's so many business problems that I think you could go back a hundred years in Harvard Business Review and read, well, they were talking about these issues of effective marketing and, and this and that. And, you know, just because it's an old topic, it seems to me, it, it's always ripe for new solutions, new ways to solve that problem. So, you know, when I hear people say, well, we need it, we need to address new business problems. There's more white space there and this and that. Well, yeah, there'll be more white space with the more, you know, the, the newer problems, but the old problems, they haven't gone away completely as problems. They're ripe for new thinking, new solutions. So why would we abandon those problems? I mean, if we knew what the answers were, we'd, we'd be all doing them. It would be easy. It's actually quite simple, but not easy. You know, how do you retain employees in the face of the great resignation? Treat them better. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> <Make them> more. <laughs> it's pretty simple. Right. Not easy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, the second question area is around, um, you know, your thought leadership strategy for you, uh, on your current focus of leadership of disruptive innovation. And every company is in that tent, it seems to me, just about every company. And it doesn't just have to be a media company trying to deal with Netflix, it could be a chemical company. But uh, how did you decide on that topic focus? What was it? Uh, how did you wander into that territory? Yeah, again, it was after I wrote Groundswell, I realized that the number one reason why companies were failing at dealing with all these changes and innovation, technology, anything was leadership. We were in this old way of thinking about leadership, you know, very traditional way of command and control and hierarchies. And all of the social media was upending it. And so leaders are still in tremendous turmoil about how do I show up? How do I lead? How do I actually develop relationships with people? Is that what it's about? And we don't think about leadership as a relationship. It is such a fundamental idea. We think about it as a title and position and power, and it's all about relationships. And, and I look at everything through the lens of relationships, the technology, the strategies, the actual um, implementation, development of culture. It's all through the lens of relationships. That's what makes us humans. It's what drives us. And we're terrible at it. Yeah. And you've broken new ground. I believe you've broken new ground and others think as well in, in that important area. But but when you decided to go into that area, I think it would have been easy for somebody to think, well, Clayton Christensen's got this. He's the disruptive innovation guy. And McKinsey's talking about so-and-so McKinsey and Boston Consulting Group and Bain. They're all talking about disruptive leadership. Did you pause at all to say, this looks like a crowded territory. I don't know if I should go into it. Did you have any of that? Yes, um, quite a bit. I just felt like they were all missing something because everyone was saying the way to do this is to have an, uh, an outside operation because the core business couldn't change. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense because I'm now seeing these core businesses actually changing, trying to change. They're doing something. Something is fundamentally changed. And the answer is, Technology was making it so that these communications and the power distances were being closed. Couldn't mm -hmm. do it in the past. They were absolutely right 10, 20 years ago when they were talking about this world where you really had to set it outside because the core mothership just was never going to change. But now there was a way to deal with information scarcity and communication scarcity inside of companies. Technology. So the, the, the fundamental assumptions of how businesses worked changed. 
And I thought I had a unique perspective on saying, how could you actually do this? And I waited to write my latest book, The Disruption Mindset, until there were enough case studies, not at technology companies, to be able to write an entire book about this. Charlene published that book, The Disruption Mindset, Why Some Organizations Transform While Others Fail, in 2019. In this book, Charlene looks at companies such as Southwest Airlines, ING Bank, T-Mobile, and Nokia, and how their leadership has been managing these disruptive technologies. So you really come at it from the standpoint of, well, I'm gonna focus on you know disruption from within as opposed to disruption from without, meaning like you said, we got to set up an outside business because the core business will kill it. It'll choke it. You said, no, you know, maybe in some companies that's necessary, but got to think about how to disrupt the core from within the core. Radical thinking at that time. Yeah. And, and frankly, it comes from my own business experience because of what I did at community newspapers was disrupt from within. And they said, you know, that my other example was Boston Globe and Boston.com. They're a separate organization. And I was completely embedded into the newspaper. It was not a separate operation. So we could leverage, first of all, the assets, leverage the leadership and got buy off to say, yeah, we're going to create a product that was going to compete against us. And we knew why and that we had to develop this because it was the future of the company. So when you are changing the actual DNA of a company, like that hard, hard work. You don't embark on it just on a whim. You got to do it because you fundamentally believe that the future is going to be better than where we are today. You don't do that as an outside entity. You have to do that from within. Has to be done from within. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Has to be done from the top. How do you look at how you, if somebody would explain, well, Charlene, how did you come up with all this great thinking, these, these best-selling books and You know, how did you crack the nut on that topic? How would you describe your content development process? This 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 book was really different because the other books I pretty much knew what they were going to be about. And so we had outlines, we kind of wrote it from beginning to end, we looking for case studies, but we knew what thesis was for every other book. This one, I had no idea what the answer was. And so really had to go out there and research and talk to people and figure it out along the way. So it was messy. It was really messy. (laughs) And then when I realized, and no one actually says, you know, our disruption strategy is focused on future customers. That is exactly what they were doing. I looked at all these case studies and I'm like, what is it that they do? They were incredibly customer focused, but they weren't looking at just the current customer. They were always looking at the future customer. So I actually put into words what they were doing and they didn't even realize that this is what they did. That's just the way they did it. You put the label on it. You said, well, this is what you folks are doing. And I'm going to put this label on it. Well, you look at superheroes, right? They don't think of their superpowers as anything unusual. because it's just, They do this every day. I mean, you can't see through walls. You can't fly in the sky. It's so easy for me. It's just like second nature. These disruptive organizations have the superpower of being able to just constantly look to the future. And they don't think about it as something unusual. Yet every other company is like, um, how do you do that? How do you orient the entire company on looking to the future? How do you do that? So went through and figured it out. So would it be fair to say your learning is largely from case examples of companies that are wading through these issues, you know, some more successfully than others and looking at the differences between the quote unquote best practice and the rest? Yeah, um, I don't know any other way to do it. Data and case studies, because if I just sit here at my desk I'm never going to learn anything. You know, I I go out there and observe. 
So I take a very anthropological approach to this and I go and wander around, talk to them, literally visit their offices when I could, just talk to them, spend days with them. Oftentimes it's very synergistic with my client work too, as well. I mean, this is the interesting thing. I see my client work as helping them applying the knowledge, but also doing constant research. Like, how do you think about this? And I'm like, oh, wait, this is a new problem that's coming up. I never thought of it that way. Like, what's the challenge around that? I, I my, my colleague, um, Jeremy Aoyang would always say, always be researching, ABR, always be researching. And I feel like every interaction, even like this conversation here, I'm learning so much from it. Like, these are the things I have to think about, remember, and I take notes of them. So when you look, you know, in my experience, the way companies do thought leadership research is they'll throw surveys out there, get hundreds or thousands of responses, call that, well, it's quantitative. You know, we have real data, you know, percentages that we can say best practice does this, worst practice does that, you know, quantitative, largely quantitative. And then maybe there's three streams. Second stream is the case study research of the type you do. And the third stream is purely secondary research where we try to understand from what the Wall Street Journal and Fortune and others have said about these companies, we'll try to read the tea leaves that way. So it seems to me you're squarely in that or largely in that second camp of primary case study research where you're talking to people, talking to companies. Yeah, I, I, I do all three, actually. So the um, the survey work and everything, I do that usually once or twice a year. Again, case studies are always great. And I do the third. So I'll give an example. Um, every January, I write a, a little short piece about priorities for the year. I don't do predictions. hate predictions. Mm-hmm. But the main reason is, okay, so you predict something's going to happen. So what? What do I do with that? Right. So, okay, you're going to predict this is going to happen. So what do I do? And the vast majority, go look at the predictions list. They don't tell you anything. <laughs> the last thing they want to do is tell you what to do about it. I will never put out a piece. I'll never have a live stream. I don't do anything without saying somewhere along the way, this is what's happening and this is what you do. I'm too much of a pragmatist to do that. But my methodology for that is, and the reason I put it out in January is I look at all the predictions that everyone else is putting up. I'm doing all this secondary research. I'm looking at all the trends. I'm like, what are they saying? There's so many smart people out there. I go through and look at all these predictions, catalog them, see what the trends are, and then sit back and like, if I were reading all of this, what would my recommendation be? So I distill all of that, use my knowledge of what my conversations are with leaders, my primary data knowledge, and then all this great thought leadership from all these other people, distill that and come up with opinion based on some sort of research to say, this is what I think you should be focused on. Your priorities for 2022, given all these things that are happening. The case research, the case study research, the interviews with companies, how important is that in your research mix of of getting that, you know, talking to real people at real companies and getting answers beyond what can be extracted from a survey? It's actually so important because um, just given my access, I can talk to a lot of them. And this is my, my process. I go and like, hey, I'm doing some research. What topics should we be researching about? What are your biggest point points? And they'll never tell this to a consultant, but they will tell it to me. And I just go through like, this is it, this is it, this is something else that's on my mind. And this is a real challenge for me. Like, what's, what about this problem? Have you ever come across anybody else who does this? That's such a privileged position to be in, to have these really confidential conversations with people. And they know I'm going to hold it confidential for them. They know I'm going to take that larger topic, but I'll never say this guy at that company said this. 
Sure. And the input is gold in terms of, you know, which way you point your research efforts mm -hmm. and the questions you ask of whom going forward. Okay, so let's talk about, you know, the ways that you bring your expertise to market. You know, you were one of the first to, I, I think, to explore in a very deep and substantive way, the impact of social media, including social media marketing. And, and lots has changed since you, you began, right? Lots has changed. So um, much has changed. I remember when there wasn't Facebook, I remember this thing called MySpace and people thought that was uh, really gonna be the next big thing. And who was it that bought it? Uh, News Corp, I think, bought it, right? And then not much more happened with it. H have you, at your, of your, for your own marketing mix, um, have you been rethinking, wh what is my mix? Something. I mean, I started with blogs. And, and you know, when we wrote um, Groundswell, Twitter and Facebook had just appeared. There were like barely any mentions of them in there. They're there, thank goodness, but barely anything. And then we wrote uh, an update two years later and there was a lot more mentions of them, but it's it's just fascinating how quickly it changes. And that was in 2008. That, that wasn't very long ago. And, you know, we were talking about RSS, you know, feeds, community boards, and now we have live streaming, we have TikTok, we have um, Discord, which isn't, you know, what's Discord? How do you put Discord into all of this? Got Reddit, which is more of a public community, but Discord is fascinating. How do you build this community? Um, do you stream on Twitch? No, none of my community is on Twitch. I would never stream on Twitch. I stream on LinkedIn and I archive over to YouTube. I try to connect to Facebook when it's available and Twitter is there too. So I stream into four different channels and, and there are different reasons why. So there's, I mean, I keep mixing it up. I launched a podcast finally, and I'm starting to do a course about mm -hmm. how to really change. So constantly mixing it up because your audience is growing and changing about where they get their ideas. So one of the things I did before I wrote Disruption Mindset was to do a survey of people asking them, how do you find new thought leadership? Where do you go for your ideas? Think about the last idea you put into place. How did you learn about it? It's rarely through books usually through a podcast, through a video they watched on YouTube, um, an article they read, a blog, a tweet. So it's very, very diverse. And you have to choose. And I think the biggest mistake is spreading yourself too thin. So I don't have much of a following on Instagram, even though so many other thought leaders do. Mm -hmm. My following is on LinkedIn. I've doubled down on LinkedIn, started mm -hmm. a newsletter on there. Um, it's doing extremely well and growing, but that's the base. You go to your strengths rather than trying to lift up everything else. So I post on Instagram just to kind of keep that connection. I have hardly any followers there, and I'm not going to put a lot of investment into that because it's not going to pay off compared to me growing my audience on LinkedIn. What do you think it is about LinkedIn as a, as a, a social network that, that makes it really good for you? It's a matter of timing. I got on early and I became a LinkedIn influencer and that drove my my audience right from the very beginning. That initial boost is what gets it. And what you find on LinkedIn, the people who have huge followings, they built it very quickly early on. So what does being a LinkedIn influencer mean? LinkedIn launched its influencer program way back in 2012. Today, it's a group of around 500 people who LinkedIn sees as being leading thought leaders, Charlene Lee among them. Other influencers include Bill Gates, Virgin founder Richard Branson, 
and Huffington Post founder, Ariana Huffington. Charlene became a LinkedIn influencer early on, in fact, in October 2012, when they launched the program. The timing has helped her gain a substantial following on LinkedIn since then. She has over 270,000 followers on LinkedIn today. Uh, it's really hard to grow it past that level unless you have another big event or boost that happens somewhere along the way. Um, same thing with Clubhouse or like your spaces, any of those things. If you get in early, you draw people because there's no one else around and you can build a following very, very quickly. I think when people are reticent to do that, they, they think of MySpace. Well, you know, what if Clubhouse is the next MySpace, right? A better social network comes around and everybody abandons Clubhouse, right? Yeah, but you know, if it was good for the time being, that's great. I mean, if you could get a couple hundred thousand or even a million people on Clubhouse listening to you, that's better than never being on there. And as things shift, as your audience moves, then you have to keep experimenting with all these things. So it is a delicate balance, but you know, I, I hear from people like, I don't want to be on LinkedIn because I don't own that list. Why is ownership such an important thing? It is so viral and you can create more audiences and people share, you're growing your audience, even if you don't quote own them. So these sort of scarcity based mindsets we replace with abundance mindsets as a thought leader because you won't get very far if you're constantly holding things in and not thinking that, you know, my ideas are out there. I share my presentations all the time and I see so many thought leaders, well, I don't want them to, what, what are they gonna do? Someone's gonna take your presentation and present it as you? They'd be honoring you, they'd be spreading your words. Why wouldn't <laughs> you want them to do that? Take my presentation, share it with everybody. You know, take the video, share that. That has helped so much by not being so tight with my content. And that was a key strategy in founding uh, founding Altimeter Group, right? Different okay. research uh, and dissemination model than the Forrester. You pay us fifty thousand or whatever the, the the entry fee is for one of the research services, and then you'll get everything. We were four people. We had to. <laughs> so it was a blue ocean strategy. Go someplace where they couldn't follow us. So we had a hundred thousand people reading our research compared to like five thousand. I mean, the numbers were twenty x. So when you do that, you instantaneously build up your brand. And we were talking about something that was very hard for people to follow into social technologies. So brand new, only game in town. So we grew like gangbusters in 2009, 2010, when everyone else was shrinking. After leaving Forrester Research back in 2008, Charlene launched Altimeter Group as a very different research company. Altimeter gave away its research for free using it to generate consulting projects that, of course, came with a fee. It was a very successful strategy for Charlene and Altimeter Group. She sold it in 2015 to Profit, a brand strategy consulting firm. I mean, the consulting, you know, it, I imagine it helped generate consulting business, but you wouldn't have gotten in front of thousands of people had you had this gatekeeper model of, well, entry entry fee is 25000 or fifty or I mean, we gave the research away for free, but because we took such a design thinking approach to it, we, knew, we were writing to a very specific person. Mm -hmm. We had a very specific problem that we could help them solve. And they would literally call us out of the blue and like, we need to get you in here right now. It feels like you were looking, you were in my boardroom, or you're looking over my shoulder. You have exactly looking at the things that we're having a problem with. And when you have 100,000 people reading that report, you only need a small number of them to call you. So our biggest scarcity with four people was analyst time. I could not have them spending any time on marketing and sales. So it was literally just answering the call, scoping the issue, and then going off and addressing that. 
constantly repeatable. So we didn't have to reinvent anything new. We had done all the research. We could do all the assessments and consulting on one very specific problem versus having to do it and start from scratch every single time. Which is a much different model than the Forrester, Gartner slash CEB models out there, right? Which is you don't get anything. You get a press release if you don't subscribe to one of our services. That's all you get. You get the press releases that everybody else gets. Everything else you got to pay for it. And it removed the issue of most of the revenues coming from vendors who wanted to influence the analysts. 100%, you couldn't buy us. You couldn't buy Altimeter. There was nothing to buy. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine the vendors knocked on the door heavily saying, hey, we'd like to, you know, can we do a study? And by the way, they're not, what they're not saying is we really want to influence your next report. We did a lot of white papers, but it wasn't the mainstay of our business. And we had 100% control over the topic. And it was usually something we always said, we cannot say that you're the best, the only, anything like that. It has to be on behalf um, of the customer that you're writing for. There's nothing, there was no way to buy us. Uh, so this is the third area of questions. What are your topic interests for the rest of the, uh, of the decade? Is there another one beyond disruptive leadership? Yes. Again, I, I think of disruptive leadership, digital transformation as being very technology oriented still. And so I, I mentioned this focus on stakeholder capitalism, conscious capitalism. But another one is how do you actually create organizations that will be dynamic, capable of dealing with flux? Because leading in a complex world, we're now not just looking at the disruptions coming at you, but how do you prepare an organization systematically to be constantly changing? We as leaders are taught and as businesses to optimize things, to create stability, to like create norms and standardizations so that things always run the same every time. Versus how do you orient an organization to be constantly changing, starting new things, and very importantly, closing new things. We don't have a mechanism to say, hey, we're gonna be sunsetting this part of the business. Those people need to be taken care of, and we know this is going to happen at some point. So the retraining, everything that has to happen. We don't set up organizations this way. How do you actually create an organization from scratch to be constantly changing and evolving and reinventing itself. You know, we do know, at least the books I've read and articles I've read, that has even been difficult for uh, for some of the born digital firms to do during their life. So take Netflix, right? I mean, it was DVDs through the mail, order on the website, and then they shifted to, uh, well, we're going to begin streaming. Well, that shift was not altogether smooth from the books I've read about Netflix. And you'd think, well, if anybody could get this shift right, it would be Reed Hastings and his crew at, at Netflix. But they struggled with this switch. And so I hear you saying companies are going to have to make those kind of switches much more frequently. And we saw with the pandemic that some organizations kind of sailed through it very easily. Others really struggled with the kind of change. So looking back again at some of the reasons is because they were wired for change, for flux. They had the processes, the mindsets to take in all of this new information, process it, uh, triage it, decide what to do, go in that direction. Oh, wait, go back. That wasn't the right direction. Go this way instead and be able to change your minds. I mean, these are capabilities that you develop and anticipate you're going to have to use versus everything has to always be the same. Right. It's very fragile then versus being anti-fragile where you're getting stronger with every single time. Yeah, so how do you build agility into, into the business as opposed to kind of a, a force that we have to deal with every two years and sell people all the time? Here's why we need to abandon this business and get into this business, which is can be an uphill battle. 
So what do you think there are certain industries where this is really important more than other industries? No. And my favorite example is, is um, I was talking to a CEO of a sand company, like beach sand. He was saying, oh my goodness, my industry is being so disrupted. I'm like, I'm sorry, you make sand. How is that possible? And he goes, you're right. I mean, we usually just sell to five distributors and, you know, they always buy our sand, but we're realizing that sand is a component for glass that's going into these devices, changing so quickly. We're having to go out and talk to 10,000 end customers. I understand what's going on. And we need to talk to even more thousands and thousands of these material scientists who are thinking about like the new sands and glass that they need. So our business has completely changed. Because we need to be on top of the latest technology changes. So we produce the right kind of sand. Oh my gosh. It goes into that glass. So I don't think any industry is immune. I look at CMEX in Mexico. They make cement. They are wired for change. Everything that they do is like, how do we transform? How do we keep, I mean, they're constantly looking for new things. And they're a cement company. Yeah. And the sand company just, I think if there's anything that could be a commodity, it would be sand. That's a great example. Okay, so final question. Anything to ask you that I should have on these topics that you think adds some more color or more illumination? Um, You did a great job. You're such a great interviewer. I, I would say the one thing that thought leaders always forget is that, you know, you have to publish. You have to be constantly out there. And so this thought that I can just write a book and then sit back. Oh, I can just put out this one big piece. It's going to be the one that just dominates everything. I think is just a mistake because you're putting all of your effort into one thing and you think you don't have to do any engagement. I'm sorry, but you have to be top of mind. You have to be out there. If nothing else, to test your ideas to see if it resonates or not. This idea that can be one and done, put it all out there and one fell swoop and I'll do it after I publish the book. No, you have to do it right now because it's all about audience development, developing a relationship with them and constantly encouraging that conversation to take place. It is a conversation between a thought leader and the people you are trying to lead because they will only follow you if you're there when you show up. If you're not there, they're going to follow somebody else. So does that apply when you use LinkedIn, which is kind of a one-way, one-directional communication? Here's my post. People comment. They don't answer the comments. Constantly in there. Constantly in there, replying to every comment, liking them acknowledging them, thanking them, asking what other questions do you have? So I'll be very honest and transparent. I don't do all of it myself. I have a team, you know, but they're in constant communication with me. Like, hey, this is a comment here. You need to go in and do that. Um, And I go in and read every comment. I go through and read every single one of them. And do some of these comments change your thinking on a topic where you say, I got to cover this aspect of it on my next post because I kind of missed it. One person was writing about this conscious capitalism and said, I really want to talk about that. And like, you're absolutely right. We should go talk about that. And, you know, all all these things. And they inspired me to go and talk about those things. And I thank them. And um, just did in my live stream, I said, you know, I need to hear more questions from you all because I love answering them. So come and ask me questions and I will shout out to you and answer them in the next live stream. Wow. It's like having a 24 by 7 focus group around the clock. It's fantastic. I mean, I love my live streams because I always begin with a question. Like today I was asking, what is the biggest thing you learned from your digital transformation? And people were sharing that and I literally put them up on screen when they, they share it. And, and, and that is so helpful because I'm hearing from them what's worked, what hasn't worked, um, getting questions like, how do you do that? You're saying this and that, how do they make sense together? So 
it's really good. Uh, it's great to have that kind of dialogue with people. And gives you new material to think about, which um, is not was not the case in the old world. If you go out and give a speech somewhere and you may get some questions and you run out of time, but you're not getting that kind of feedback that I'm hearing you're getting on LinkedIn of, wow, I better look at this. This comment's really interesting. I've missed it, right? I, I, I better explore this. Can't do that in a, in a typical one-way communication uh, channels of, of the past. I, I love the Epitheus uh, quote that you have two, you were born with two ears and one mouth and you use them in the same proportions. <laughs> if we're in, to be effective thought leaders, we have to be constantly listening, filtering, learning, constantly learning, and then pulling it together into thoughts that hopefully people will, will listen to. Well, listen, this has been great having you. Really uh, appreciate you being our first, our inaugural guest on this, this new uh, podcast and look forward to the next discussion whenever that happens. Thank you so much for your thought leadership on thought leadership. It's been so incredibly helpful to read your work. It was a real pleasure talking with Charlene Lee for this first episode of Everything Thought Leadership. There's so much to be learned from Charlene about how to create compelling content, how social networks like LinkedIn enable you to engage your audience uh, with your content and actually learn from them about how to improve your content, what questions um, they would like you to answer. And there's also so much to be learned from Charlene about how to stay interested in the domains that you choose for your content. You can follow Charlene and her thinking, her podcasts, her LinkedIn live streams, and her other channels by starting with her website. And that's charlenelee.com, C-H-A-R-L-E-N-E-L-I.com. I'm Bob Boudet of Boudet Thought Leadership. And you can find out more about me and my firm and my new book on thought leadership and about this podcast at our website, todaytlp.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. To all of you, thanks for tuning in. Email me your comments about this podcast at bob at budetlp.com or send me an email via LinkedIn and follow this space to learn more about our upcoming guests. See you on the next episode of Everything Thought Leadership.